Are rules meant to be broken, or should they be followed at all costs? In this week's episode of the Chain Clankers Disc Golf Podcast, Quinn and Horatio are joined by the newest Chain Clanker member, Trent Forrester, and we all three debate whether or not Kristen Tatar deserved to have a rules violation called on her in the Champions Cup and break down the entire drama that happened at the Champions Cup with Kristen Tatar and her daughter and give our own takes on the matter. As well in this episode, we also have a fantastic discussion about forehands and how you can improve your forehand, how to grip a forehand, and how to have a more accurate forehand. If you're a new disc golfer or a disc golfer who's been predominantly backhand and you want to try a forehand and you need a little bit of help with it this is the episode for you because in the beginning we are going to be exclusively talking about forehands and how you can improve your forehand and then we get into the debate about the champions cup as well at the end of this episode we debate should tournaments be just pro and am divisions or should they be broken up like they currently are make sure you stay tuned for that heated debate as well Thank you so much for listening and supporting the Chain Clankers Disc Golf Podcast. If you'd like to support us more, we have just created a new Patreon page, patreon.com slash chain clankers. Check it out. We've got three tiers with what we are hoping will provide you, the listeners, some value as well. And we would definitely appreciate to have your support over there. There will be a link in the description below. So make sure you go check it out. Let us know what you think. Maybe you want something added to it. We are all ears. Let us know. And hey, keep leaving those ratings and reviews over on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We're getting dangerously close on Spotify to hitting that 100 review mark to get a giveaway going. I think we're sitting at about 80 at the time that I'm recording this. So thank you guys so much for all your support over there. We've got a giveaway going on on our YouTube channel right now. So if you haven't checked it out, make sure you go check it out. We've got awesome videos coming out every single week over there. But without further ado, let's get into the episode right now. This is Trenton Forster, and you are listening to the Chain Clankers Podcast. All right, everyone, you have heard him on the intro. You have watched the YouTube videos with Trenton. Trenton is the newest Chain Clanker joining our team, the first edition to our team, Horatio, this is the first little bird that we've brought into our big, beautiful nest that we have created. Trenton, how are we doing tonight, man? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, had a nice day at work, ready to talk disc golf. Pretty excited, you know, like you're saying, first chain clanker. You know, when we started this, we didn't really, you know, think about, I guess, long term or bringing on more little birds or whatnot. But who knows? And maybe in five years, it's just a whole clanker squad. Yeah, that'd be uh, that'd be pretty cool. That'd be pretty fun. Somebody behind the the studio right now who could have dealt with all of our tech difficulties before this. Wow. That would have been nice to have. So if you want to join the Clanker squad here in three years, you let me know right now over on Instagram. But hey, let's uh let's kind of get into the episode here. You know, Trent, how did you uh first first get into disc golf? So um I mean I always kind of knew about it saw the courses in, uh, in my hometown, you know, some of my friends played, never really got out to play. Um, and then in college I took a, like a PE class, you know, one of those prerequisites you got to have just to get a couple credit hours. We did, we did disc golf there and I, I was having fun doing that, but then it really didn't pick up until probably 2018. I went with my good buddy, Matthew, a childhood friend. And, um, 
I don't know. He got, I guess he kind of gassed me up. I threw a pretty good forearm or sidearm, forehand, whatever you want to call it. And uh, from then on, I, I kind of started playing more casually, probably once or twice a month. And then during the summer months only, though. And then when I got really hooked was uh, 2020. I'm a COVID golfer, just like you guys. Uh, I call myself that. I've been playing a little bit longer. But 2020, I really, really got, I mean, hook, line, sinker. I played every every weekend at least once since probably August of 2020. So can't get enough of it now. It's it's just it's like all I want to do. So yeah, that's really cool. You know, you joke about you know calling yourself COVID COVID golfer, you know, and whatnot. And Quentin tries to pull that same line with me sometimes. He likes to say, you know, oh yeah, we both started playing during COVID when he like literally taught me how to play, and he'd already been playing for a while. Whoa, and so you know. Whoa, 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 whoa. What, God. Whenever he, whenever he beats me, because I'm still, you know, not quite being able to beat him easily or not. So, so whenever he beats me, yeah. So I just, I just fall back on that that he's been playing twice as long as I have. So, hey, you know, you can keep saying that, and I'll keep collecting my six packs. So I'm okay with that. You, uh, you, you keep beating me too. And every time we put a sixer on the line, you said it. You said it in the other podcast the other day, but. I've been telling Horatio this also is that literally anytime somebody puts a six pack on the line, I come alive. That's when I, you know, I, I play boring disc golf. You know, I, I'm Paul McBeth at WR Jackson third round. I, you know, I, I, who cares about the winning or scoring good, but you put a sixer on, I turn on the 16 down in me and uh, just become alive is how I like to say it. But, but let's, let's, let's talk about you right now, Trenton. So, why did you get into disc golf in that 2020? Like, obviously, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people got into disc golf uh, it, during the pandemic. You know, I've been talking to a lot of people over on Instagram lately. They're kind of saying the same thing as well. But like, how were you able to actually get hooked into disc golf? What was it about disc golf that got you hooked in the first place? And how were you able to then continue to be hooked? And like, we're two years after that. Why are you still playing disc golf today? Yeah, so I guess... What got me hooked is uh, I'm, I'm very competitive. I started playing with um, a couple different buddies here in the local Wichita area. Um, and they used to, you know, wipe the floor with me. I'd get whooped. I would get lucky to shoot. I'd play Oak all the time within, get lucky to shoot. I don't know. A good round for me was like 10, 10 over, <laughs> over par back then. And uh, I just, I don't know. I, I guess I wanted to be able to beat them or at least compete. And then as I practiced and as I watched YouTube videos and, you know, everything, I just got hooked on getting better. I used to only throw forehands. And um, now I, I would say I trust my forehand on my upshot, but I don't really like all I work on now or all I worked on when I really got into it was my backhand form. And that now that's like if I need to hit a tight line or if I need to do really anything besides maybe max distance, I'm going to my backhand. So. I just, I'm just hooked on the process of getting better and, and playing and, you know, watching the disc fly through the air. Like a lot of people say, I think it's one of the most beautiful things. Just, I don't know why, but when you get a full flex shot or a nice little turnover, that big S curve, I just, I just love it. It's very interesting what you say, you know, about starting out with the forehand and then moving on to the backhand. I feel like a lot of people actually do that. You know, I feel like at the beginning, they're very comfortable with that sidearm and to some people, it comes more naturally than that weird backhand swing. But then once they figure out 
Um, the backhand, I feel like it feels more accurate to a lot of people, and they go to that and they kind of leave the sidearm. Uh, do you do you kind of regret, you know, when you you started going to that backhand, not using that sidearm as much? Do you think if you had kept, you know, kind of doing both as consistently, that you would have a solid sidearm and a backhand? I don't regret it. I still think I have a pretty. I still think I have a pretty good sidearm. Um, I would say. I would, I don't like the word regret, I guess. I do think I went a little too heavy on the backhand and now my four or my sidearm is, is, uh, a little bit lacking. Like I said, I don't trust it as much. Um, I'm starting to get in, I've been working a lot with the justices and a felon, um, on my upshots or even like the 250 foot, 300 foot holes, forehands, if they're dog leg red or whatever. And I'm getting really comfortable again. It's just, um, I don't know. That's that's a really good question. But no, I don't regret switching because I still think I have a pretty good sidearm. So, Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know I've seen when you've thrown it, it, it definitely looks pretty good, comes out pretty clean. Um, it, it's one of those things where I know when I took a couple of my buddies out for the first time, you know, you know how it is with most disc golfers, literally their very first time, they're going to struggle unless, you know, you're Paul McBeth or something like that. But one of my friends could not do the backhand to save his life, but he could slang a forehand, man. I'm telling you what, he was doing really good. So it is kind of interesting that you also brought that up, Ratio. Did you, did you ever feel that way at all? Did you feel like when you were first kind of getting into it, that, that forehand was easier for you than the backhand? No, no, my, my forehand has always been trash and it's still, I'm like barely, <laughs> I barely like recently have started to kind of mess with it again, just because I feel like I need it. Um, and my buddy who I play with all the time, he throws a lot of sidearms and I just recently started doing that. Just super relaxed. Like I don't do a step up. I don't do anything. I just walk up and I literally just flick my wrist, you know, pr- release the disc pretty flower, like a little bit of hyzer and I'm getting them to go, you know, as far as he is. And he does like a whole, a whole run up and a whole swing with the arm and stuff. And on some holes I'm out driving him. So that's super, super exciting. Um, and I, you know, I can't wait until I put in the, the timing, get the timing right and start to do a swing. Cause then, you know, there maybe could be a little bit more distance there. And that's super exciting. Cause I, I love watching people throw sidearm, just how it comes out flat and like it goes really far and you can do, I mean, you can double your shots. So yeah, but no, I wasn't like that at the beginning, but I also didn't play baseball. You know, usually a lot of those people that are natural with that sidearm at the beginning are usually baseball players or football players also kind of, I guess. My biggest issue with my sidearm is I started out with overstable, like really overstable discs. So I forehanded like a Ballista Pro was one of the first ones I had. I used to forehand, well, I still forehand felons. I, I forehand a Halo Wraith, which if anybody's thrown that, it's like, I don't know. It's ridiculously beefy. Um, and so now like I don't trust myself to sidearm. Well, I built, I created a natural flex line with my sidearm. So everything kind of comes out a little bit Annie. And, uh, so if I grab something remotely just stable or understable, it basically, I turn it over into the ground. So I've been working on kind of like what you said, Horatio, trying to take my time and not be as like, I don't have to throw it as hard as I can to get it to go far. I just need to pay attention to the angle and just let the disc do the work and just give it the the pace that it needs. So, so like, let's open that box up a little bit more. Right. So like, what are you doing in the field to accomplish that? What are you doing on the course? Like if I'm a new disc golfer and I'm trying to upgrade my forehand, like how can I do that? 
so for me it's been slowing down like and not trying to throw everything as hard as I can it's like um I don't I don't necessarily always do a standstill but like especially on upshots like I have started getting my you know my hip set everything how I want to be and then even my back like my back draw is is a lot slower than if I'm off the tee on my upshots right so I'm just taking my time I'm like I'm, you know, I look at the disc and I'm like, okay, I want it on an ante and do I want it flat? And I, I started out with the angle I want it to be on. I draw it back nice and slow, almost like a, like a slingshot, nice and slow. And then just, you know, just slow and controlled. Uh, what, what does, um, Danny, I think from DD say smooth or slow is smooth and smooth as far. I'm kind of trying to do the same thing with my sidearm. And then when I'm on the tee, I just try not to throw it as hard as I can. And it's made a, it's made a, huge difference i get about probably the same distance and i feel like i i can trust it a lot more than when i'm you know it's like a 450 foot hole and i used to only be able to throw sidearms i can't throw it that far but that used to be my longest shot and i would i felt like i used to have to go up there and throw it as hard as i can well now i think my form's getting better and i don't need to throw it that hard so it's just reminding myself not to just chuck it yeah it's definitely the same you know as backhand that's one of the main things we tell people is just to slow down but, you know, I feel like there's definitely a big difference between a standstill sidearm and, you know, a a T sidearm where you're teeing off. And I don't even it's months like somewhere between it's not a standstill. It's not a run up. It's literally just kind of a walk up just because I feel like there's like a little bit of movement and you kind of want to step into it. Uh, you know, whereas a standstill, you, you're you put kind of your weight on that on that back leg and then you swing through and you swing forward and on that walk up that I do really, really slow allows me to focus and like get the timing perfectly. So on that last step, you know, I, I rock that, pull that wrist back and then I step into it and that tiny, tiny step, like just not like I'm walking. And on that, when I pull my wrist forward is when I take that step forward and kind of throw that little bit of momentum, that little bit of body weight into the shot, which is essentially what you're doing on a, you know, a regular sidearm where you're, where you're doing a run up, you're doing that step, and on that last one, you're you're stomping your foot and throwing everything you got into that into that elbow to rock it forward. Um, so yeah, I think that's been the biggest game changer. So anyone you know that's struggling, or if you're that person that's throwing those overstable stuff, you know, just stop. You know, it's probably it's working out for you, and it's it's a good shot to have. Um, but I would say you know this is the this is the sign that you needed to stop doing that because it's going to hurt your game in the long run in the sidearm you're going to improve quicker um, if you learn how to throw a disc and on a flat release on a hyzer release and get it to stand up you know i know um, when i do throw sidearms right now i'm trying to work on them i literally have one disc that i pull out to throw and it's like a 167 wraith so you know it's just overstable enough that it's going to come back and it, it's i'm not going to overturn it but it's lightweight and, you know, it's right. So it's just not too overstable to where I can get it to maybe stand up a little bit or do kind of that that line and stand up and fly out and not completely just, you know, hyzer out. So it gives me that distance. So, you know, I would say, you know, if you're trying to improve, uh, find one disc that you're comfortable with, probably something lighter um, that's going to help you get that confidence and get that motion. And then you can worry about, you know, moving up. Um, cause then you know that all you have to focus on is that motion and not, not the disc and just pick one disc and just stick to that one. 
whenever you go for those sidearm shots, just throw that one single disc and that way you can learn it and you can correct. Cause when you're throwing multiple discs, um, you have to kind of change your angle. So it's just a lot easier just to focus on one. I agree. And one other thing that I kind of figured out through my little sidearm journey, I don't know if this is correct. I don't even know if I've seen it on like YouTube videos that I used to watch, but I have a disc and I have a bunch of discs right behind me, but anyways, I have one right here. So I used to kind of keep my wrists like, you know, a little wiggly. Um, and I've noticed if I not necessarily cock my wrist back, but I'm just doing it cause you can actually see it. But like when you're lining up your shot, almost have your wrist, basically, I'm just going to call it tight. You just want it. I don't, if it's loose, I don't have as much control. I feel like, so I almost just tilt my wrist back kind of another way to think of it is like you're holding a like the tension of holding like a cup of coffee is a good way to think about it and then when you come to come through your wrist isn't floppy and you should i noticed because i used to have a little bit of wobble when i released i noticed that it got rid of that wobble because there's my wrist isn't you know isn't all loosey-goosey it's it's tight and ready to go and then naturally as the momentum comes your wrist is going to flick through so that's been another um game changer for me as far as when I was learning my sidearm. So let's take another step, right? Like pick that disc back up for you. If you're watching on YouTube, you'll be able to watch this, but like, could you explain maybe how, especially pretty good for like the audio listeners, like, could you explain how to actually grip a forehand like disc? Like how, how should I be holding the disc to even throw forehand in the first place? Yeah. So I'll show the camera for the video people, but basically, Hopefully my phone number's not on there. Anyways, uh, basically, you take take the disc and put it between your pointer finger and your thumb and, like, push it back into the V or the flesh of your thumb right there. And you want it to be tight on your on the flesh of your thumb. Here, I can show you from this side. You want it to be tight in there. And then, basically, the way I hold is I, I stack my middle finger and my pointer finger on the inside rim. And then... Um, I put my thumb on the flight, like right on the edge of the flight plate, almost where the flight plate meets the, I don't know, would you call that the bevel or the edge under the disc? And then the key for me is to have it tight in my hand because that will help reduce um, the wobble that I was talking about when you release. And then, you know, just, you don't want to like grip it and squeeze it like you're, it's your first time driving when you're, you know, 15 years old and you're scared, white knuckle. You just want it nice and firm in your hand so you have control. And then, like I said, cock, I don't want to say cock your wrist back. Put a tension in your wrist and it happens to go backwards. And then um, almost like, like I said, like you're holding a cup of coffee and then just do a nice and easy um, follow through throw and your wrist will, your wrist will naturally just pop through like it should. And then at the end, a lot of baseball people, and I did it because I played baseball, you you not, you always rolled your wrist because you're trying to put spin on the ball. Um, you want to almost keep your – like when you release the disc, you want to keep your on your follow-through, your palm facing the sky. That'll keep you from rolling your wrist over. It's kind of weird to think about, but that's how I do it. And it – because your wrist will pop, and then it for me it keeps the disc flat or level or however I want to throw it, so – it's whatever works for everybody, but that's, that's what's helped me or that's how I, what I think has helped me anyway. So. Yeah. And I know another thing that, you know, my buddy struggled with for a while and on times, you know, his sidearm would be good. And then other times he'd do everything the same, 
and it would just come out super high or on a hyzer and he would just get upset and you know kind of figured out that he was doing everything you know and he was flicking his wrist and stuff but he was stopping there like so he would come through with his arm swing and after he flicked the disc he would kind of just stop right there in front of him he wouldn't follow through and so you know what he figured out is he'd flick it and then basically throw through his body after the disc is gone just like backhand and throw through his body and let his arm just completely wrap around you know with that wrist up and go all the way through keeping that motion all the way through allowed him to you know to get that disc to get that extra power extra snap and you know that allowed for his disc to come out cleaner not as much hyzer because he was you know doing the full motion as opposed to when he was just finishing halfway you know snapping it's pretty much you know like if you're stopping your throw halfway um was causing to pretty much come out early and 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 on a bunch of hyzer so i definitely say look at that if you're having that issue with your sidearm so another question i have if, if i think a common mistake that happens on a lot of forehands especially if you're new or if you're struggling is throwing him pretty much like straight up and then they just hyzer out immediately like there's not really like that push you know what i'm talking about it's literally like backhand like when you just throw a nose up and it just goes up and comes back down i feel like that's also a common mistake that happens on forehand could you maybe explain a little bit how to correct that I actually, my brother-in-law just came out and played with me. He's played like once before, but we went and played Thomas Park in Salina um, over the weekend, and he he walked it with me and threw threw some shots. You know, when you're first starting out, it's never it's never pretty. Um, it wasn't bad. He had a good time. It just it didn't do what he wanted it to do. But he was doing the same thing. And what I had to tell him, or what I would tell anybody when I'm watching him throw, especially if it you know, goes up in the air and then hyzers out right away is like Horatio said, make sure you're following through. Cause that's going to be the biggest thing. If you just like karate chop, the disc is going to, I mean, I don't know, do go up in the air, go straight in the ground. Um, the follow through is going to be the biggest thing, but I also was telling him and anybody else I played with that's brand new is whether you're backhand or forehanding it's, it's either way. Um, try to keep or keep the disc level with the earth is kind of how i explain it so like for video for the video um people you can you know this is obviously the earth not obviously this is the earth this is the disc if you're throwing it like this and then expect wondering why it's you know hook and right and you're throwing it on hyzer as you're learning and at the beginning i didn't know what hyzer was or anheuser i would just play disc golf so I, i focused on throwing it flat but that was the biggest thing for me and then when you release it, like Horatio was saying, um, a lot of them go up in the air just because I think that's just, I did it. I mean, when you follow through naturally at the beginning, you just kind of, your arm just kind of flails up high. Um, focus on doing the same thing. Like Horatio said, with your follow through, keep it flat and level with the earth. And you'll probably see a lot further shots and a lot straighter shots. Won't be the distance you want right away, but I, I guarantee you it'll, it won't go 30 feet in the air and then just tank down. 80 or 50 feet in front of you so that's a great point i know one of the first videos on sidearms or stuff i watched is just to kind of pretend that you know you're you're throwing that disc on a table um you're trying to slide it across the table granted if you're throwing like a spike hyzer sidearm you're not going to throw it on a table it's going to be that level plane that you were talking about and then also another thing is kind of um kind of flicking through your target point or you no, know, if you have like a point where you're throwing at 
um, to get that to come out, you know, stronger and more direct is instead of, you know, just focusing on throwing it out there, throwing through it. And almost like if you're literally like you're trying to get the disc there, like if it was, I guess, like on a spider web connected to your like on a rope and you're trying to flick it and throw it to that point. Um, if you throw towards that, you know, like you're throwing it forward, it's a flick. But, you know, if you're th throwing with that forward motion, um, it's going to come out more straight and definitely on a, on a straighter line. Right. I do the classic aim for a tree and hope I miss tactic. Throw it through the tree and, you know, they're 90% air. So, yeah, I think my discs would beg to differ on that one. Cool. Well, hey, I think this was a really good discussion on forehands. If you are trying to learn more about forehands, if you've been struggling with forehands, I think there's a lot of good tips that we just covered. If you have more questions, obviously feel free to comment them down below on the YouTube video for this and we'll answer as well as, you know, our DMs are incredibly open on Instagram. I would say that 99% of people get a response. So feel free to always message us on Instagram. I want to move this episode in another direction now. And I want to talk about the latest controversy on the Disc Golf Pro Tour. What I'm talking about here, it, it comes from the Champions Cup on the FPO division. Paige Pierce and Kristen Tatar battled it out literally the entire tournament, the last two rounds. And the big controversy is that Kristen had her nine-year-old daughter with her and sometime before the first nine were over, I, I believe what I saw on Twitter was it was like hole four or something like that, was there was a phone call to Paige Pierce's caddy and they then removed the daughter, the TD did, from the card and made her have to go into the gallery with, you know, however many other people there were there. And the, the what I've gotten from the information is that they gave her a quiet sign so at least she was able to be close to the card. She didn't have to be fully, you know, engulfed by 100 plus people. But nonetheless more news came out and the person who actually called this rules violation was Elaine King, who is the color commentator for the disc golf network. She's also sits on the board for the PDGA. And so I guess my big gripe here, I think where the controversy comes is, you know, the PDGA, I'm not even going to say really, this is PDGA's fault at all. You know, rules should be enforced ratio. You and I, we've been on the podcast before we've said, Hey, enforce the rules. I'm all good with enforcing the rules. I think Kristen Tatar is also all cool with the rules being enforced. She's even admitted that she should have followed the rules. I get that. I think the big bone to pick here is the fact that this was called a rule violation, but yet how many memes are there Nico taking over 30 seconds and that doesn't get called? How many foot faults are there literally on coverage that don't get called? How many mandatories are missed that don't get called? How many other rule literal violations that affect the game that are not called, but yet this was called. And, and really the big bone for me personally is that it's coming from somebody who is commentating on the event. I think that is unprofessional and not okay and is a slippery slope that is awful for the sport. Imagine if Tony Romo, broadcaster for the NFL, was doing a Chiefs game and he saw the Chiefs were offsides or had 12 men on the field last play. What happens when that happens? They're like, oh, yeah, that's a penalty. The refs missed it. He doesn't call the coach 
for the other team and be like, hey, you need to tell the officials that there was an offsides on the last play. And then they do something about it, right? That is preposterous to me. That is not okay. So either A, she continues to commentate and she is not allowed to do any rule enforcement or B, pull her out of the booth and she can do whatever she wants. That's where I sit on the subject right now. Uh, I, I will have more, but I know I've been going for a little bit, so I want to give you guys an opportunity to uh, give your thoughts on the situation, give a rebuttal, and we'll, we'll kind of just debate this out. A little debate night action here. Yeah, so I know like from what I did see, and we might see more stuff come out, and you know, there's always two sides to one story, and it's not always what it seems. And we only, you know, as audience, we only get a certain percentage of what actually is happening or going on. But from what I saw was that Elaine King was being nice and looking out for Kristen Tatar. And instead of going to the TD, which she could have, or going to someone else or to Paige or someone else directly and telling them, she went to a caddy, you know, someone that wasn't completely involved, but somebody that was there just to keep it kind of, I think, hush hush or like to keep it more calm and being like, hey, she shouldn't be doing this. And it was kind of like, I don't want to see her to get disqualified over this, especially when they're battling. And, you know, they're, it's, they're not really at that point, it wasn't really who was going to win. You know, they're battling for this championship. I don't want to see her get disqualified for something silly, you know, her knowing the rules. And if she knows the rules and she's watching live, then everybody else knows that rule. And, you know, someone else might've done something about it. So, from what I saw is she was just looking out for her and was like, hey, you guys should give her a heads up that her kid, per the rules or whatever, should not be on the card with her. And somebody should let her know and let her take care of it before someone steps in and disqualifies her. And so, you know, I think that that's what I saw. And maybe, you know, that's not the case, but maybe it is the case. I, I like to think that that is kind of what happened. Um, you know, I can't imagine Elaine King was, you know, oh, I'm going to do something to spin so Paige Pierce will win. Um, that's that's kind of what I understood. And if that's the case, then I feel like that's that was nice of her. Pe- more people would have been mad if nothing had happened. And then TD came and like even and like, let's say she won and then someone filed a complaint afterwards. And they're like, well, we're actually stripping you of the title because you had um, an illegal, you know, person on your card kind of thing. People would have been even more upset. They they got t- they took care of it. They allowed her to fix the issue, let her keep playing. Um, I don't think that that's the reason she lost. She missed, you know, putts. That's her. She was able to continue playing, you know, nine more holes because I think they did it at hole like nine or something. She was able to continue playing just fine. So you know, we can't com- we can't blame her losing on that. So she was able to keep playing. Um, and still contend for the title as opposed to being DQ'd. Trent, if you don't mind, let me jump in real quick just because I have the tweet here. So the tweet from the literal tournament director states, uh, so there's a question. um, Somebody says, uh, quote, I'm honestly confused on why it mattered so much. It wasn't going to cost any strokes or disqualification. I understand that it's in the rule book, but I don't know. It just seems like a lame situation. Another Twitter user says, from what I understand, it could have resulted in a DQ. And then the literal tournament director responds and says, absolutely false. There's nothing in the rule book that states it would be a DQ. At the worst, 
it would have been a warning. As TD, I'm the only person who can DQ someone. Not only did I not consider it, the very notion was never discussed with Kristen. The uh, same Twitter user responds back and says, appreciate the clarification. Seemed to be a lot of confusion out there on the repercussions of the rule in question. The tournament director then says again, I can't control false narratives and other actions. All I can control is exactly what I controlled. Ensure the rules were followed. And most importantly, make sure her daughter is safe and still able to be as close to the mom as possible. So here's my kind of gripe. Now that we know that it would not have resulted in a disqualification. I don't personally think Elaine King is coming at this for being nice or being thoughtful. That's my own personal opinion, because if she would have, she would have done it on the very first hole and she would have texted the tournament director. Because if you're on the board of the PDJ, if you're on whatever rule committee board that she's on and that's what she, and she's genuinely worried about the rules, then why are you texting somebody's caddy? the competitor's caddy? Why aren't you texting Sarah Holcomb's caddy? Why aren't you texting Owen Scoggins' caddy? Why are you texting Paige Pierce's caddy to handle the situation? Text Christian Tatar. I don't, you know, do, do, literally the DGN has Terry Miller on site. Why is he not the one who's being contacted to then remedy the situation or something like that? Like, why is it Paige Pierce's caddy? So for me, the whole process that she went through was very unprofessional, very wrong, creates a slippery slope for disc golf in general. And it should have been called on hole one. She should have been like, because I remember I had, to, I, I had to stop watching the live after the third hole, I believe. So I, I missed live when this actually happened. But I, I, I remember her saying something along the lines of, her daughter is with her. Either her or the or the co Ian, I think, said that there the daughter was there with her, and so they clearly knew she was there. Clearly could see that she was walking with her. So why did it take four holes for this to become an issue, or however long it took for it to become an issue? So that 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 just kind of fuels my fire, my my not necessarily conspiracy, but my like my, my wheels are turning, my 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 thoughts are going here. Uh, Trent, why don't you weigh in? I didn't realize I watched a lot of the FPO coverage. Um, I didn't, I definitely missed that, that happening. I did not catch when, you know, Kristen started or Kristen's daughter or any of it. I didn't, I didn't realize that all happened. I saw the tweet afterwards. Um, Quentin, you and I have talked about it a little bit. I think, I think I have to agree the, uh, the commentator going, reaching out to the caddy of, her direct competitor who literally they're tied or neck and neck, you know, whatever that is, that is an interesting, interesting situation. Like you said, I mean, Terry Miller's on the, on the course. I mean, she probably knows half the staff, maybe not half the staff. Obviously she doesn't know the volunteers, but she knows a lot of the staff that's there, you know, running the tournament. And I just thought it probably could have been handled. Definitely. If, I mean, if she's like you said, Quentin, if she's, you know, knows the rules. Obviously she knows the rules, but she knows them that well. Like she should have realized, I'm not saying she should have realized Kristen realized that she should have known the rules as well. So, I mean, both parties are all, every party I think is a little bit at fault here. Kristen could have known the rules. Like she stated in her, her Twitter post, Elaine could have reached, you know, handled it a little bit differently. I think overall the PDGA and the TD and everyone did the right thing. Um, by letting the daughter obviously carry the quiet sign and walk with her mom still. But I couldn't imagine being a nine-year-old or however old she is. And in a foreign country, I was walking with my mom and then I had to, you know, 
granted she's still right there but i have to go stand in the crowd with some strangers or you know some volunteer who seems nice but i don't know this is kind of weird um i couldn't imagine being in that situation and Kristen did play great still um you know ne- we're never gonna know like how much mentally it affected her but obviously there was a lot of pressure on the last hole who knows that might have tied in a little bit to it but she also had a 50 footer she had to make to force a playoff right or maybe it wasn't that far 40 50 footer i don't know i think it could have been handled differently i thought christian's response to it was fantastic she took ownership which any great athlete i think does that i gained a ton of respect i was i was legit heartbroken when she lost because i was rooting for her pretty good um i was wanting her to win that but I don't know. I think the whole situation is going to open a lot of eyes to to that rule. And is, is, it, is it even really reasonable? I mean, if she's not, if she's not, if, if said person, regardless of age, if, this, if the person that's caddying in your family, whatever, knows the rules, is being quiet when they're asked to be quiet, not causing a scene. I mean, what does it matter if it's a nine-year-old or a 30-year-old, you know, as long as they're following the rules and being respectful of the competitors, I think they should be able to carry the bag or whatever she was doing for her mom or for any disc golfer, any pro that's, or any player that has a caddy. So, yeah. So I'll I'll jump in real quick again. Sorry. I just want to get a two clarification pieces out before you go Horatio, just because I know somebody in the comments is going to be like, Oh, you're not paying attention. Here's the rule. The rule 3.05.B states, a caddy is a person who carries a player's equipment or provides other assistance during the round. Players may designate one caddy at a time during their round. A caddy must be at least 13 years of age and must comply with the same official rules of disc golf and competition manual as their player uh, as the player must follow, follow, including dress code, although the caddy need not be a PDGA member nor certified official. And so she was nine years old. The daughter is nine years old. And the other thing that I wanted to bring up real quick, because I did just do a quick search, is that Elaine King is, yes, she is on the board of directors for the PDGA. Um, So I just wanted to make sure that that was clear, because I know I said I had thought she was. But like I said, I just wanted to make sure that's clear. Sorry, go ahead, Horatio. I don't know. Besides not doing anything about it and just kind of letting her, I guess, break the rule at that point. And then you would have also had mad people, you know, talking about, oh, it could have been handled better, you know, taking away the whole Elaine King thing, stepping in, you know, if it would have been somebody else and brought up or whatnot. um, The only situation where I think it could have been handled better is, I guess, just leaving her there and letting her finish with her mom on her, you know, with her. But then you're 100 percent breaking a rule. And then it's like, okay, how serious are we about our rules? How serious do we want to be taken? Um and then, you know, so I don't think as far as handling it, I don't know what you could have done differently. But also, if Kristen Tatar, you know, if they had done it, everything everything happened the way it did. No one knew about it until it was over, kind of really. The stuff started coming out. Um, if Kristen Tatar had won, nobody would care. People would have been like, oh, that's kind of odd and kind of weird. But nobody would care. Um Quentin cares a lot because he's a huge Kristen Tatar fan. And a lot of the people that are upset are huge Kristen Tatar fans. If she had won, we would not be having this conversation. But because she lost, people are upset and talking about it and want a reason to blame for, you know, Paige winning. And it's kind of, I feel it sucks for Paige because it's taken away from her, from her win. Cause it's all this, all this bad, 
mumbo jumbo, um, you know, because they weren't head to head the entire tournament. You know, Kirsten Tatar was ahead, you know, first round or so. Paige had a bad first or second round. And then she like completely came back and was able able to come back and compete for the win. So I definitely think, you know, yeah, it was weird and odd, but it's it's definitely I feel like a huge part of it is because she lost is why we're having this conversation. I agree with the fact that you're saying if she had won, would the conversation be having on the level that it was happening? Probably not, to be completely honest. And I'll also be completely honest. Do I have a horse in this race? Absolutely. I like Christian Tatar more than I like Paige Beers. I'm not going to deny that. You're 100% correct. But what I am going to be you know, fighting for here is that I think, and no one will know except for Christian, you can't tell me. And I'll ask you, both of you, both of you have children. Imagine that your child was nine years old and you are competing in a major championship. And now not only do you have to focus on that, you now have to be like, wow, my son or daughter is now in a crowd of 100 people, 200, 300, 400 people. And what happens if I turn around and the next second they're gone? Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, I I don't have it. I can't imagine what that feeling is like. I'm not making an excuse. I'm not saying that's why she lost, but I'm saying to a certain degree that had to have been in the back of her head. It definitely would have been in the back of my head. And so I want to go back to kind of what you were saying. Uh, the beginning of your argument there, Horatio, is that like, I, I think the take is not the best in my eyes because I think that at the end of the day, Elaine King should not have been the person who had called this. And I don't think it makes a difference. And you're saying that if, this rule isn't followed, then we can't take disc golf seriously and rules aren't going to be followed. Who cares? Rules literally are not followed already. Why is this the rule that we decide to care about? We decide to care about somebody's nine-year-old kid, but we don't care about Nico LaCastro taking 50 seconds. This is the one that we're talking about right now. I don't, you know, I don't care about Nico. You know, this is the one that we're talking about. It was a major, it was on main stage, it was live. It's what people are looking at it. If it was brought up, by somebody and it was made the attention of people and then it was like all right what are you guys going to do about it and tournament director was like nah just let her continue it's fine you know we just won't let it happen next time but like kristen said i should have known the rules so how you're talking about that anxiety we don't know what that did to her mental state like she said she said as as a professional who has been playing for a very long time and you have to take a test to be on the pro tour because you're saying that you know the rules she knew whether she likes it or not, she knew that she was breaking the rule by bringing her daughter. So she should have gotten someone to watch her before the round. There's, there's, you know, she has friends that came with her from Estonia that could have watched her. She willingly brought her nine-year-old daughter knowing that, you know, she pro- maybe didn't think about it or maybe didn't think anyone would say anything about it but she did. So partially it is her fault. It's not completely, you know, yes, we can blame Elaine King. Yes, totally. But the fact that it was brought up something, I'm saying something had to be done about it because it is a rule. No. Okay. So I'm not saying you're wrong. I agree that she, and she agrees she took full ownership for it. But what I'm saying, my, the, the point of my argument comes down to is the tournament director says, he wasn't going to DQ her. At, at best, he was going to give her a warning, which in most rules, like if you take too much time, you get a warning, you do it again, you get a stroke, right? So it would have been the same thing. You brought your daughter to this tournament, it's a warning. If you bring her to the next round or tournament or whatever, okay, it's going to be a stroke. Nowhere in the rule does it state she can be DQ'd. So that 
whole entire argument can go out the door. And I think Kristen said that Kristen said in her post, she's like, I almost, you know, with the possibility of being disqualified. She said that. Yes, she might have said that, but the literal tournament director said later, he's the only person that can DQ somebody. And he said he he wasn't even thinking about it. He wasn't even going to do it. So like that probably was on the back of her mind. She was like, oh, wow, I might get DQ'd for this. Maybe somebody had been floating that around. But the guy who makes the final decision said he wasn't going to do it. He wasn't even thinking about doing it. So really what I want to get at real quick, I know we've been going on this for a long time and I'll, I'll let you guys get one more response and I promise I'll shut up and not repeat again. But it's it's A, the slippery slope effect. Elaine King should not be the one calling these things. Either get her out of the booth or she shouldn't be calling the things she's calling. And, and B is that I think if this rule matters, we all, Nico LeCastro should have a penalty called on him every single event and everyone who foot faults should have a, a penalty called on them. That means Elaine King, the next time she sees somebody take more than 30 seconds or the next time somebody steps on a disc or misses a mandatory or, or whatever, I want her to text the direct competitor's caddy and let them know that there was a rules violation and that they the group needs to come to a consensus and, and give that person a warning. That's different though because you, know, they, you can't use video to penalize people it's it's a live sport and you know just like soccer or other stuff and they recently started doing it to like for penalties or whatnot you know during rounds the only people that can call somebody on foot faults are the people on the cards and they have to do it right then and there you can't even go from you know hole seven do a foot fault and then go to hole eight and be like you know what i just remembered you had a foot fault you can't do that it has to be right there and then and you cannot use video this scenario, it was on live coverage and it was continuous. It wasn't like one hole she did it and then didn't. it was something that was happening and everyone could see it. So like those are completely different rules being broken and we can't do nothing about that because I think that's that's more of the community and the vibe that is around disc golf. And I think we'll, it's not going to change for another 10 years. They're, they're a family and they're used to traveling together, staying in the same houses, eating together, like celebrating holidays together. So they don't want to make cards awkward because it's kind of like your coworkers and call people on football. So I think that's why that whole re- reason and that bad, you know, people not calling people on footfalls or time. I think that's, that's the problem. I think that's a separate problem and it's not going to go away until there's more people in the field. People don't know each other. It's more competitive and it's more cutthroat. And they're like, I don't know this guy. I don't care, but he's competing to take my win footfall. And it's, I think we'll see it more then, but until all these people kind of age out that have been playing together for 30 years, we're not going to see that. That's totally different than from this scenario. So I just, want to make that clear that we're those arguments are completely different okay sorry Trent I'm literally the worst this is the debater coming out in me where every time somebody makes an argument I write down my response to it and then have to give it I promise this is it I will let you talk and I will move on I promise but I I just have I have to get this out it's literally the debater in me is that Elaine King, was she there? She literally wasn't there. She was using video, literally watching on TV to call the rule in. So it it's there's no link differential there. You, you can't use saying? video for foot faults, for like foot faults or yes, like exactly. So then she shouldn't be able to use video to call this. She shouldn't, she shouldn't, you know what I'm saying? Like she's have she's watching it on the video. She's not Terry Miller, the disc golf guy who's out there. She's not the caddy. The caddy wasn't going to call it on her until she called her and told her to do it. 
that's that's where that's like that's a thing that I physically cannot get over, and I can continue to go on and on about that. Um, but I, I like I agree with what you're saying though. On the other half of that though, that people don't want to call rules violations on each other, which is just another call for why we need course marshals out there and referees who are going to call rules violations on people because we're never going to have rules actually enforced like footfalls, like time, all those things without those marshals out there. I promise I'm done. Trenton, go and Horatio, you can respond if you want. I'm putting myself on mute. All I'm all I'm gonna say, I think you guys kind of hammered that one out pretty good. All I'm gonna say is uh in regards to the I mean you brought it up already, but the field marshals or the referees, um, and obviously it's a manpower thing, probably hard to do. You got to find people that want to do it and want to be the bad guy that's calling Paul McBeth on a you know a 32 foot circle one footfall. Anyways, you got to find, I mean, the really the only way to solve, maybe not the only way, but a very legitimate way to solve this problem would be to have 18 referees that walk with each card, or maybe it's more than 18, however many people you need to have, have a referee that walks with each card the entire round and watches everybody throw and watches everybody, you know, warm up or not warm up. Um, get set up and you know, whatever it might be. And that's the person that's calling these penalties. And then it could even be like, okay, the referee called a foot fault. Maybe it's not a, maybe it's not like a done deal. Maybe it's like the rest of the card mates are like, did you guys, cause I mean, how many times have you seen, even in our little in, intermediate tournaments or rec tournaments, you see someone call a foot fault, you're like, eh. or you see someone do a foot fault. You're like, eh, I'm not going to call it. But if there's a referee who's like, that was a foot fault. Does does the did, did anybody else on the card see it? And if one person says yes, you know that's maybe that's the answer. And if everyone says no, nah, it's fine, then they move on. But the referee is the guy who's taken out. You know, he's almost like the ice. He or she is like the icebreaker. It's like that's technically a foot fault, and whether or not it's hundred percent what the ref says or it has to be second seconded, maybe that could be you know something if you have the manpower and the people to do it, but. Anyways, that probably takes actually having paid referees and probably down the line a little bit, but yeah, no, you know, I think caddies, pro tour, are like people that they have to know the rules, like it's kind of part of the thing, and so I think that would maybe a thing, you know. I think like that rule said they don't have to be a PDJ member, so maybe you know going forward for the pro tour or you know at least for them, um, even just to be a caddy, one of the requirements being that you have to not only be a member, but you also have to take a test that you know the rules. Cause then, you know, maybe I could maybe see a caddy calling or saying something about, you know, them being kind of the referees for the whole card. Cause everybody has caddies. And then, I mean, you don't really have to pay them or whatnot, but um, as far as, you know, rebuttal, I don't have any, I've been done. Um, I think, you know, people are just being, people are just being bad losers. It's really lame that, you know, Elaine, King, as an observer, stepped in. I don't think it was her business to do so. Um, and, you know, hopefully going forward, you know, TDs are, you know, they put some more rules, not rules into place, but just practices. Uh, but I think it just, she brought it to the attention. And because it was brought to the attention, they had to do something about it because people knew about it. And we weren't there. We didn't know how it went down. You know, it might have been, you know, it she might've texted the caddy and, you know, Paige's caddy might've been like, Hey, this is weird. And, you know, being, you know, Paige, the person she is, you know, competitor, I feel like she's still like a really good person. She might've been like, 
like, like, you know, that's weird. Like, I don't care or whatever. Like, I don't, I doubt that Paige was like, oh, take her kid away right now. Make it happen. Let's go. Um, you know, so we weren't there. We don't know what the situation went down like. Uh, you know, they might have tried to keep it hush hush. And then maybe, you know, she told someone else or whatever. So I don't like to think, and especially if this isn't going to come out for another week. Maybe some other information will come out in meeting time and we'll just seem like total dummies. So, uh, you know, I think it's a bad situation, um, but mostly, yeah, if she had won, it wouldn't matter. Yeah, I, I think a lot of what you summed up there at the end is pretty good. And I'm glad that I could get you to agree that on the Elaine part. So I will. T- a, a lot of comments I was seeing is a lot. Of, I don't know. A lot of people don't like Elaine King. I don't know why. Uh, but you know, the commentating, you know, they're not a fan. So I don't think people were, people were too, uh, they were ready to jump on her. So I don't know. Maybe we don't see her anymore. I mean, this is my, I did watch all of the third round, I think live and a little bit of the second and obviously a little bit of the fourth and man, I'll tell you what guys, the commentating still is not very good. Either it's calling out the wrong discs or constantly saying that was a good shot or that was a bad shot. And then they get up to the shot and they're like, Oh no, this is perfect. Or it's terrible. Like just, I don't know. There's a lot that I think could be fixed. Um, but we're done. I'm done. I'm not going to go on anymore. Cause I know I could Trenton transition us. What's your hot take? Let's keep the debates rolling. All amateur divisions. Well, there should just be one amateur division in my opinion. Um, you pay like 50% of the field anyways, rec, intermediate, advanced. Why not just put them all in the same division? And then, I don't know, say there's in a tournament of 90 people like there is around here, there's 45, 50 amateurs. If you finish in the top 25, you cash. If you're like the top five, you're probably close to being able to go to MPO. If you're consistently winning or top two, three, you could probably bump, jump up to MPO. But... And then, well, I say one entire amateur division. I think there should be, for the people that are really there for like, I'm trying to see where I compete or where I land against my peers type of like 100% competition, one amateur division. Now, I think there could be like a, you could call it rec still. There could be a division or maybe no PDGA number or brand new player, like just starting in the last six months, like a division for the people that are just starting um, so that it's a little bit more friendly or catered to the people that are just starting, kind of want to check out a tournament, get a little more competitive, but they also might just be interested in the players pack. Um, That's my hot take. Get rid of rec intermediate and advanced, make those three one division and then still have the same payout for the whole division. And then I think you um, create a, have three divisions still, MPO, um, amateur, and we'll call it rec just for sake of, I don't feel like thinking of something new. And rec is strictly like six months or newer PDGA if you don't want to play in the in the uh, amateur division, or like I'm just here for the players pack and to have fun with a couple of my buddies that decided to sign up. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. You know, that's something I've been saying forever because it just doesn't make any sense. You look at tournament results and the results just don't make any sense. A lot of times they're like copy and paste, you know, depending on the courses, the the scores from intermediate and advanced will be similar. And like kind of sometimes the 
scores from rec and intermediate will be the same. So it's like, what's even the point? But some people, you know, they can play in certain divisions and be able to compete better because of that. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, having a newer, you know, just only AMs and then even a division below that for just novices or, or newer players. And then you make it to where maybe, you know, for tournaments, it's like five or ten bucks, like just a fee to play. But then there's like very little to no incentive for winning um, because then you kind of take away the people wanting to play that because then there's really no point to win in that rec division and beat all the newer people um, because you're not going to get anything out of it. You're kind of just playing to partake in the tournament, um, you know, and maybe you don't even get a player's pack, you know, because you're new, you're only paying five, ten bucks. You're just p paying to see how you do in the tournament. Um, and that way, people that know they're good or know that they can compete, they're not going to want to pay in that play in that lower division because there's they're paying kind of just for nothing, which kind of just like doing the league night. So you could get the same out of that. And so the people that will stay there are people that are solely playing just to, just for fun. And, you know, winning is, you know, be cool, but I don't think it would be as competitive because, you know, we even do one league night here or Millbrook um, and sometimes they'll combine rec and intermediate and i'm like that's cool and like last time we went we cashed but i'm like that's super unfair to the people playing in rec division because they're paying as much as we are but they they don't they can't cash they're competing against against the people that are no you know crap saying hey we're playing in intermediate because we feel we're too good for the rec division so we don't want to you know sandbag so we're playing in that intermediate division but we're still competing to take the rec players cash and which is what's happening. And so the rec players they're paying, but they literally can't win unless they have a hot round or their rec players who should be moved up to intermediate. Um, and so, you know, the talking about having, let's say a tournament for simple math, a tournament where you have 90 players and then you just do one division for AMS. I think that you could even, you know, once it's finished, you could even break it up in 30% or whatever, break it up into three and still do, you know, at the end, post-tournament, do a advanced, intermediate, and rec payout. So you take the top 30 players and then 31 to, what, 60 or whatever, and then 61 to 90 or whatever that is. And then so first, you know, whoever's at the top, that's going to be your advanced players. You know, and the top five of those are going to get cashed out. But then you break that off at that 31 point. And then so player 31 to 60, 31 player will fall into the intermediate bracket and maybe they cash and then it's broken down. And then the very bottom, because it's going to it's going to fall by scores. So you're not going to have an incentive to sandbag if you play bad. If you play bad, you're you're just going to fall towards the bottom. It's going to hurt your score, your rating, but you'll have the incentive to play as best as possible because you'll be towards the top. And then so cash payout would be higher for that top portion, even if they pay out, you know, that bottom, that middle 30% and then the bottom 30%, if that makes sense. I was agreeing with you for a whole lot of the argument until the end. And for me, it's the, like, let's take you as a prime example. You don't have a PDGA number. Whatever rating you get does not matter because it is not sticking with you. In a flight system like that, what is stopping you from finishing 
let's say 25th in advance and not cashing and I don't know, missing a couple of tap-ins to bump yourself to 31st and then you win all of intermediate. You know what I'm saying? Like what's stopping you at that point? Because you wouldn't know, like you wouldn't know in like how many, it depend on the tournament. Like you'd have to be doing some high level math during it's your round. It's just like checking your scores during the round. You just hit leaderboard yeah. and it'll show you where you're at. I guess, but I mean, you'd have to be a really like cruddy player. That's no different than now. That's no different than now going out on UDISC and playing around and saying like, and by yourself and you know, you missed a putt and then. I'm like, oh, I, I would have made that, though. I would have made that. And giving yourself a three, like, you know, just being a crappy player, that's like the what ifs, you know, like missing putts on purpose to fall into the lower bracket. You just, you can't fix crappy, you know, unethical people, you know, with certain stuff. You're always going to have that. You know, that's an issue, you know. But I feel like that bracket system would incentivize everyone to play as best as possible because they're just going to fall wherever they fall. And then if you fall, you know, you'll know where if you play four tournaments and you're constantly in the middle, you know that that's kind of you're just an intermediate player. I think the bracket system would work if you couldn't see what your score was. If it was completely blind to what your score was and where you were placed, then, yeah, you probably have incentive to do as best as you can. But also, if you're like, I know I'm if I'm keeping score in my head and like, let's say I'm like plus seven and I came into the round like. 20th i was like well i gotta be getting pretty close to 31 at this point maybe i'll just take like a six on this next hole you know what i'm saying? like i i think i see both sides i see the i do see the yes there is it can limit potential sandbagging but i can also see the other side where it increases sandbagging where when you pay out like that like i think if you have the let's say it's 90 people and you pay out the top 30 top 45 whatever it is i think that's the best way to not sandbag because you're constantly trying to get towards the top because it's one of those things where I, I initially I was like, no, there should be the separate divisions. But how many times have you played a tournament and somebody in rec has beaten somebody in advanced? You know what I'm saying? So like if everyone was in one division and you paid out the top 45% or whatever, that fixes that. You get paid based on, and you're just playing AM, so it, it doesn't matter what division you're in. If you cash, you cash. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I like your idea, Horatio. I don't know that the payout should go that way. I think, like, breaking it out breaking it out to, like, the top 30% is advanced player. Like, you're technically an advanced player if you're in the top 30% of, you know, over three tournaments. If you're in the top 30%, you're an advanced amateur. If you're in the, you know... 33 to 66%, you're an intermediate. And if you're below 33 or below, you're a rec level intermediate. Like we'll say it's it's a new system. In the old system, you would have been in and you should have been playing rec in the old system. We don't have the old system anymore if this was actually a thing, theoretically thinking. Um, but I would agree with Quentin. It's kind of like the um it's like the payout thing that they were talking about for this major. Yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to bring up a whole nother thing, but paying the last cash more it doesn't i don't i don't know it doesn't incentivize i don't know to me it doesn't incentivize you to do better because first place the i've seen a couple of things where the difference if they would have paid it like they normally have first place would have made like seven grand more than what they did if they would have just 
and and last place would have made like 650 bucks or 700 bucks so it's like a 300 difference which a 300 yes is a lot for a touring pro but is would they rather you know get fifth place and make three grand more or i don't know i don't want to go down that slippery slope i'm just saying i think all divisions all intermediate or sorry all amateur divisions should be one solid block because like you said i've seen intermediates getting second place in in advance but they're actually getting third in intermediate because people are playing lower or higher maybe they just maybe they're not playing lower they just had a really good round or two the idea is cool paying out in three different divisions but i i don't know that it would work well kind of like quentin was saying but it would be nice to know like you could it would be kind of cool to give yourself a technical level of where you are based off of where you finished so my well no sorry i'm gonna interrupt real quick because my comment does not matter my comment is just uh they made this big deal about the champions cup everybody was gonna get at least a thousand dollars and i'm looking at it and two women got 500 and four men got 250 so like they literally couldn't even give everyone a thousand dollars so that so ridiculous they should pay the top end more money sorry go ahead ratio no, just as far as you know, so with that system and the paying out, you know, I'm I'm one that's totally for it. You know, I was meet on the drive up, you know, to our Easter thing the other day. We were talking about why they pay so many people, um, and you know, it would it kind of would be no different than in the MPO if you had this one division for AMS where you have a a cash uh, like you have to make cash to a certain limit, but then that kind of really filters down. Um, you know, you don't really get that much money anyway. If you, if you are at the bottom cash, you know, I'm a proponent, you know, if we did that system, you pay maybe for the top four, you pay first, second, third, and fourth, everyone is paying. And if, you know, there's that one division um, and you know, you're not good enough, I guess. And you have that system and it's, you know, am you're playing a tournament because you want to be competitive and you think you can compete. If you don't want to pay that and you don't think you can compete and you don't like constantly playing and not winning money, then you shouldn't be playing in the tournaments. And so if they only paid out the top, let's say, let's say 10 people or even just, you know, the top, the top people that scored the best. Um, but then you also have the issue, you know, if those people should be an MPO or whatever, um, but then that would take away the whole issue of cashing out. Then it would just be, this is where the scores are. And, you know, the top, the top people that played the best are being rewarded. I think that that's also with MPO, you know, why are you wanting to pay out, you know, to 40th place? Like did 40th place really play great enough to deserve a thousand dollars? You know, I think that's cool. You know, they're on tour or whatnot, but like, they have sponsors or whatever, like they're, they're making money, but why are we rewarding 40, 39th, 38th when people in first and second are like 20 strokes higher? Like, you know, the top first place was down 39. I don't know what the score was for 40th place, but 18 plus or 18 down? 18 down. There were four people tied at 18 down. That's why it was 250 a person, but like. So 20 strokes? Better. Yeah, it was 21 strokes was the difference yeah so you know i think you cash you pay people less and you reward the top more like i don't know i feel like that's how i it mean should be. i i think i agree i think the top 25 percent top 30 percent 33 percent make it even one third of the players should get should get paid 
I think once you kind of make it like, uh, I don't know, 10, 4, whatever, I think that's just not enough in my opinion. But if it was like top 33, that would have been a score of down 23. So still not great. But then more that person, assuming all that money just goes to the top, the person who would have gotten 30th would have still been making over $1,100. And the people at the top could have made like, I don't know, closer to 17 grand, like we had talked about earlier. But hey, I think I think this is a good place to stop. I think we've covered a lot of good topics. Trenton, we'll get your ace round on a different episode. You'll be on again, so I'm not too worried about it. We've been going for over an hour already. And we've had a lot of a lot of heated discussions. People gotta settle down. They gotta they gotta digest this. I gotta digest all this. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to this episode. If you enjoyed, if you like episodes like this, maybe where there's a little bit more debates, maybe we're talking a little bit more about the pro tour, giving some opinions on disc golf overall let us know hit the like button over on youtube comment down below give us your thoughts those things help us structure our episodes in what content we create so you giving your input is very helpful for what you want to see so we do appreciate that make sure you leave that rating and review on spotify and apple Podcasts. hit that subscribe button wherever you're at new podcast every monday new youtube video every wednesday we'll see you guys next week